part of Alabama caught our attention. Coal miners in one community, they've been on strike now for months. Working as long as 12 hours a day, seven days a week, in some of the most dangerous conditions. I really think that the labor movement is the single greatest force for democracy in the history of the United States. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. I If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Morrison. Good morning, y'all. Welcome to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Adam Keller, and this is Shop Talk, our Thursday morning episode we're producing every week with a focus on labor education, history, and training. It's Thursday, September 28th, and we're broadcasting live from Spice Radio Studio in the heart of the Tennessee Valley here in Huntsville, Alabama. Every episode is live streamed on YouTube and Facebook and is released on your favorite podcasting platform in the coming days. Today on the show, I'm really excited to welcome Erica Zucker from the Workplace Justice Project out of New Orleans to talk about their work to empower workers through legal services, workers' rights education, and policy and advocacy work. Before we get into that, though, I do want to take a moment to thank our very first sponsor of Shop Talk. At the Valley Labor Report, we are big fans of Labor Notes. Labor Notes is a media and organizing project that since 1979 has been the voice of union activists who want to put the movement back in the labor movement. Through their magazine, website, books, conferences, and workshops, Labor Notes promotes organizing, aggressive strategies to fight concessions, alliances with worker centers, and unions that are run by their members. Labor Notes is also a network of rank-and-file members, local union leaders, and labor activists who know the labor movement is worth fighting for. They encourage connections between workers in different unions, worker centers, communities, industries, and countries to strengthen the movement from the bottom up. With 40 years of movement building behind them, Labor Notes exist as a resource for leaders and union members who want to chart a new course for the labor movement. At the Valley Labor Report, we are proud subscribers and supporters, and we encourage our listeners to do the same. Go to labornotes.org to find out more. So, like I said, I am really looking forward to today's conversation. Um, Weeks ago, I was doing some research for two of our main show segments, Boss Watch and Last Week in Southern Labor. And as I was searching through press releases, I saw something about a collaboration between the Department of Labor and an organization called the Workplace Justice Project in New Orleans. Um, So seeing that definitely piqued my interest. It also reminded me of our interview with Clayton from the Catholic Labor Network that has a presence down there in New Orleans, which if you missed that this summer, uh, definitely check out that conversation about the intersection of labor and the Catholic faith. Uh, We talk about Loyola University. So I reached out to the Workplace Justice Project, and they were kind enough to join me for Shop Talk today on the Valley Labor Report. So, Erica, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Welcome. Good morning, Adam. So happy to be here. Um, Really nice to hear from you. Nice to know about the Valley Labor Report and that you uh, broadcast over a local radio station here in New Orleans. So hi to everybody at WHIV and everyone else who's listening. Um, Glad to know this exists because as you just discovered us, we've just discovered you. That's awesome. And that's what I love about this project is just uh, making connections and finding out what's happening in our labor movement across the South and uh, getting to know folks and the good work that's happening. So uh, that's my greatest joy with this project. And uh, yeah, really glad we connected. And I wanted to, before we dive into the project itself, I wanted you to just, you know, take some time to introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about your story, because I'm curious what got you involved in this work. Um, So I am the director of policy and advocacy at the Workplace Justice Project. So I uh, head up all of our policy and advocacy work at the local level, at the state level, and a little bit forays into some national coalitions. My personal background is I was a labor lawyer. Um, I went to law school, graduated in uh, early 90s. 
um, and practiced labor law and labor and employment law in California for uh, 18 years before I moved to New Orleans in 2010. Um, and I did everything from always on the employer side, but I did everything from representing plaintiffs in discrimination and contract cases to traditional labor law and a labor law firm policy work. And um, I was actually on the right on the legal staff of the Writers Guild of America during the 2007-2008 strike. Um, and when I moved to New Orleans in 2010, thought I might do something completely different, um, but ended up working with the Workplace Justice Project. Um, the project itself started right after Katrina to address working conditions uh, for mostly immigrant workers who were brought in to do uh, de demolition and reconstruction work um, and to address the working, work issues that came up in that context. Um, so I came on just when they were starting to, to develop the policy platform and there, here I am. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and something that, you know, I'm reminded of all the time is that the bosses have the best attorneys that money can buy. Um, and we need good people, smart people, dedicated people in our movement who will go to law school and who will become lawyers and who will come back to the movement and fight for us. So uh, I just want to yeah tell you I appreciate that. And um, I know that, you know, it's it's a different path than many of your you know peers have chosen. And so we always appreciate when folks come back and, and want to work for the movement and represent workers and represent people on the right side of the law. Um, and you mentioned Workplace Justice Project and, and getting started after Katrina. I'm wondering if you could just tell us a little bit more about the project. What is it uh, and you know how did it come to be? Sure. So we are actually a section of the law clinic at Loyola Law School. So if you're a third-year law student and you opt to take a clinical class, you can take a clinical class called the Workplace Justice Project. Um, and the director of the of the project is a clinical professor. Her name is Professor Luz Molina. She's been a clinical law professor since the 80s. Um, and at the time in 2005, when Katrina hit New Orleans, she was, or the Katrina hit and followed by the flooding, um, she was teaching a federal civil rights clinic. And when the um, when these workers, primarily Latino workers, as I said, primarily men, primarily Latinos, many, many undocumented workers were brought in to do reconstruction, demolition and reconstruction work, there were there was a lot of um, workplace violations. There were some um, federal laws that were suspended for the disaster relief. Um, prevailing wage was suspended. Some OSHA rules were suspended. Um, there were people who were not getting paid. There were health and safety violations. There was a lot of problems. So the the director of the the director of the clinic overall asked Professor Molina, who is from Colombia, so she's bicultural, bilingual, um, if she would take on this temporary project of seeing how to help these workers. Well, temporarily, eighteen years later, <laughs> um, what was uncovered, not unknown, but certainly uncovered and exposed after Katrina, was that this was not just a problem in the short term for these people who came in to do reconstruction work, but New Orleans had long had historically, going back to its very roots as a city in the South um, in the United States, um, has had a segregation and exploitative labor, labor system. So the Workplace Justice Project has evolved to address the needs of all the workers. So from a project in 2005, I would say through even through, the, even through as long as when I came in 2011, um, our clientele was primarily still Latino construction workers. But the longer we've been there, um, the more work we've done, the more we've been known in the community, our client, our, our litigation clients have diversified to reflect the whole population of marginalized workers in New Orleans. So more women, more black women who suffer all kinds of discrimination, uh, both in low wages and in how they're treated on the job um, and other workers of all races, sexes, orientations. Um, really reflective of who is marginalized in the city of New Orleans and, and the greater New Orleans area. Um, at the same time, I came on in 2011, the 
the project had just gotten a grant to do some work around government accountability, we had started a relationship with the wage and hour division and the other federal agencies that enforce workers' rights. Louisiana doesn't really have a robust state enforcement structure for workers' rights. So we have, we don't have a Department of Labor, we have a workforce commission, but since we are one of five states that doesn't have a minimum wage, we don't have any state enforcement of wages. It has, it can only be enforced uh, through private right of action lawsuit. Um, we have a state equivalent of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, but again, it's not nearly as robust as the federal agency. Um, and then, of course, there's no state equivalent. The state OSHA only really helps employers kind of develop health and safety plans. They don't do any enforcement. And then um, the National Labor Relations Board, of course, is only a federal agency. Um, so I started out by developing those eight, those those relationships with agencies. And then as we got more funding to do policy work, have developed our policy uh, portfolio from there. Yeah, I appreciate you telling us a little bit about it and the background there. And um, a lot of the experience in Louisiana resonates with us in Alabama, of course. Um, we are also one of those five states without a minimum wage law. Um, we do not have a state OSHA. Um, you know, the Department of Labor is, is yeah, less robust. That's a, that's a good way of putting <laughs> it. Um, that's a really good way of putting that. Uh, and so... A lot of similarities there in terms of the, the labor conditions that we have. Um, you know, as you mentioned, a lot of this goes back to our roots here in the South, um, roots of, of white supremacy and segregation being used to exploit the workforce, uh, to divide the workforce. And so uh, I really think it's interesting what y'all are doing. And, and could you tell me, you mentioned a little bit about who you serve, right? It's low income workers, but workers of various backgrounds. Um, that are coming to y'all. Uh, and so what are some of the things that y'all do for these workers? Um, and, and we can get into like the policy and advocacy a little bit later, but I'm curious about what y'all do in terms of education and legal services for, you know, working class folks in New Orleans. Sure. So with respect to legal services, um, unlike a federally funded legal services clinic that has limitations on who they can see. For example, they cannot serve people who are not authorized to work in this country. We can represent any workers. Our only limitation is a uh, income threshold. So we can represent anyone whose household income is within 200% of the federal poverty level, which unfortunately in uh, Louisiana and the greater New Orleans area is a lot of people. Um, you know, we have a heavy, in, heavy, um, inf, heavy service economy with our hospitality industry and service industries generally, which have which provide low wages. As I've already mentioned, we don't have a state minimum wage, so we have a lot of people who are working for under under twenty dollars an hour. Many working, you know, for barely over the minimum wage of seven twenty-five. We have a tip to minimum wage, sub-minimum wage of $2.13. So unfortunately, there's a wide variety, there's a wide swath of workers who qualify for our services. Um, and we represent them in um, wage theft cases. And wage theft can is any time a worker isn't paid their, their full amount of wages. And that can be through employers who just don't pay. That happens, unfortunately, a lot in the construction industry. You know, someone mm. will get a contract to go do something and the employer, you know, maybe it's because they're working for a subcontractor who doesn't get paid for the general contractor, or there's a dispute about the quality of work. Um, but, you know, the end of the week will come and the boss will just say, oh, I don't have the money, or I don't have uh, the all of the money. Right. Um, I'll have it next week. Um we also, you know, the other way that, that wage theft happens a lot is through misclassification, where workers are uh, putative, people who should be employers classify their workers as independent contractors. Um, we saw this most prevalently in the construction industry, again, particularly with, you know, a contractor or a subcontractor who would go to, you know, Home Depot or Lowe's and pick up some day laborers and does designate one of them as the boss, you're going to be responsible for paying these other people and trying to say that they're an, it, therefore a separate contractor, an independent contractor. Um, 
but we've also seen it it's become a practice in more and more industries. Um, you know, it used to be when you went into a hotel, everyone who worked in the hotel worked for that hotel property. Right. So they, you know, we would go in and everybody would have the logo of the hotel on their shirts. Well, now the housekeepers may work for a staffing agency. The janitors may work for a different staffing agency. Um, you know, the even the people who work in the bars and the restaurants may work for different agencies. Um, so they may not be direct employer employees of the property, um, which leads to a couple of problems. They may be employees of a staffing agency or the employer may try to classify them as independent contractors. We've also seen that happening in the home care industry where um, a home care agency says it has independent contracts with each of the people that um, go into people's homes and take care of them. Wow. Even though those folks are doing, you know, they're not doing anything they're not directed to do. They don't right. have control over their hours of work or how they do the work or what they can do. Um, but the employers are using that to deny them access to workers' compensation, deny them access to overtime, deny them access to employment, uh, unemployment insurance if they get if they get laid off, um, deny them the opportunity to bring a discrimination case and of course deny them the opportunity to organize um, because if you're an independent contractor it's pretty near, near impossible to organize into a union um, so that's so those are the kind of workers that we what we represent um, again the 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 guiding principle there is do we have the capacity to take the case um, and is your household income on no more than 200% of the federal poverty level? Um, in terms of, of worker education, um, when we started out for about the first um, four, five or so years of the clinic, we had a weekly walk-in clinic um, where we you know, try to set up appointments for people, but anybody could just show up. Um, and part of the first part of that, or while people were waiting to have their, um, to be uh, interviewed by volunteers, we, um, many volunteer lawyers and volunteer law, law students, we um, would have educational presentations either by someone at the, from the Workplace Justice Project talking about workers' rights, or that is how we developed our partnerships with federal agencies. So we would have the agencies come on a rotating basis and do a presentation to the workers about the rights that they enforce, the laws that they enforce. Again, those four federal agencies being the Department of Labor's Wage and Hour Division, um, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, OSHA, and the National Labor Relations Board. And some of those agencies, particular, uh, particularly uh, Wage and Hour um, and EEOC, would uh, take claims there at our clinic which of course made it much easier for workers, particularly undocumented workers who might be uncomfortable going to a federal building right. um, to file claims. There is a, a, a complicated series of reasons that we decided um, that we moved away from that, inter that interview, that in-person clinic model. Um, the biggest, I mean, a couple of them had to do with capacity, but also we um, did a site visit to a partner, uh, a similar organization in Texas that was using the model of doing those in initial interviews over the phone. Um, and we found it to be much better uh, for both our work and for the workers. Um, one of the challenges that we had, we still have um, because of the nature of the kind of, of workers that we serve um, who have you know, uh, now lives complicated by difficulty and poverty. Right. Um, we, there's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot written and it's all true about the cost of being poor and the challenges that people face when they don't have resources. Um, but we just, we found that, you know, somebody would come in um, and we'd be, we'd interview them and we'd hear their story about what happened at work. And we'd say, yes, we could write a demand letter, but we need this. We need the name and address of your employer. We need, you know, do you have any pictures of your workplace? Can you give us these facts? Do you have any 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 coworkers who could be witnesses or attest to what happened? And you know, sometimes workers would have to come back multiple times before we could even get to that first step of writing them a demand letter. 
And then, you know, if we take your case on for litigation, that's that's a significant commitment, both by our staff and and by a worker to um, to follow through on litigation. It's it's not an easy task um, for anybody involved. Um, so we realized that having that first that first contact and those first conversations over the phone so we can do a real assessment um, either a straight phone call or even a video phone call, which everybody de developed the ability to do video calls during the pandemic. Um, you know, it, it, it makes for a better development of a relationship. And, you know, we do a lot more uh, advice calls. Somebody can call us and we'll have the opportunity to maybe have a 20 or 30 minute conversation with them and help talk them through a problem. Maybe we just, maybe they need a demand letter. Maybe they just need to know what their rights are at work. So that, but going back to your question about the education component of our work. So we look at education being a component of everything we do. So every client interaction is an opportunity to educate workers on their rights. Every interaction with a, a, a company, an employer is an an opportunity to educate the employers on their obligations, their responsibilities as employers. Now, you know, if you get an employer that has a law firm, you're not going to have an opportunity to do that. But there have definitely been cases in the past where we have reached out, an employer has responded to a demand letter um, with, you know, maybe they responded themselves, they didn't have counsel. Sometimes they just didn't know that they were required to pay overtime. Sometimes they just didn't understand how payment worked or um, there is an opportunity there to educate employers. And we take the opportunity to educate people on how to be um, more informed, educated and understand and, and knowledgeable workers um, to build their power as workers, as well as educating employers to be better employers. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely important. Um, you know, whenever those opportunities come up, to definitely take advantage of that. And um, but I like what you said about it empowering folks because it really does empower people to know your rights. And um, I think back to my time. I mentioned, you know, off air that I was a staffer for the Education Association, and a lot of times I would get calls from members who. You know, they didn't want to file a grievance right then and there. They didn't want to file a lawsuit. They just needed to talk to somebody. They just needed a conversation with someone they, they could trust who knew a little bit about what was going on and, and could advise them on, you know, not just their rights, but, you know, really sometimes just their confidence, their confidence to, to exercise those rights. Um, and so I think that's a really important service that you're doing. And, um I wanted to switch gears into the advocacy and, you know, policy side of mm -hmm. things, because I know y'all have had some success in New Orleans and there's been some interesting things coming, you know, out of the New Orleans City Council, but also some 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 challenges uh, because sometimes you win things and then you actually have to uphold them and enforce them and enact them and carry them out. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the policy and advocacy work that y'all do. Yeah. So as I said, we work on the local level, excuse me, we work on the local level and we work um, with a, variety, a whole bunch of partners on both the local level and the state level. And um, we're part of a, a big sort of national coalition that's trying to move the needle slowly or, you know, at least get, make our voices heard on some national issues, uh, mostly coordinated by the National Employment Law Project in New York. Um, but locally, um, we we worked with the council council former council member Jared Brossett in 2015 when he passed a contract-based living wage ordinance for the city of New Orleans, the city of New Orleans and Orleans Parish, which is what we call counties here in Louisiana, um, are one and the same. And in late 1990s, early 2000s, the city and parish had actually passed a minimum wage for the parish, but that was deemed to be unconstitutional um, and preempted by state law and unconstitutional by the Supreme mm. Court. Um, so back to the drawing board in 2015, uh, Council Member Jared Brossett uh, drafted a living wage ordinance that's a contract model that says that any city contractors 
um, must pay their workers a higher minimum wage. City contract, uh, city contracts over twenty five thousand dollars, and uh, city financial assistance recipients, which is you know tax breaks, grants, those kind of things. Um, anything over a hundred thousand dollars, you have to pay your worker your workers. Um, on those projects must be paid at least the city minimum wage and the city living wage. I can't even remember what the original wage rate was now. I know that it was raised um, when President Obama raised the federal contract rate to 1055. I guess maybe that that's what it was set at. It was set at the same as the federal contract rate in 2015. Um, and then in 2021, uh, a group of worker organizers were able to lobby the council and that was raised to $15 an hour at the same time the city raised its own minimum wage for its employees at 20, at, at $15 an hour. So it's now the, the minimum wage for the city is set um, for city contractors and city employees is at $15 an hour and that is annually adjusted for inflation. Um, so we did have a hand in that. Um, we also worked with a coalition of labor unions, primarily the building trades unions, um, to enact a responsible contractor ordinance that passed at the end of 2021. Um, unfortunately, it's been a very slow process of getting the regulations and the questionnaires necessary to in place, necessary to implement that ordinance. So it's it's on the books, but it's not really in effect yet. Um, and that is the challenge that we face. We face this um, ever-present problem of, past, you know, even where you have a fairly progressive council, and some of our councils have been more progressive than others, um, we certainly have some council members who want to do the right thing by workers and are often willing to uh, promote legislation and to push it through, but it's whether those those pieces of legislation get implemented. We have been, you know, that it, a living wage a living wage ordinance is a great thing. I mean, I would say $15 an hour isn't enough for anybody. Well, we know it isn't enough for anyone to live on in New Orleans, but it's better than the, the operative minimum wage of 725. But right. the problem is if it's not being implemented, um, you know, if hoppers that, you know, subcontractors for one of our major sanitation contractors go on strike because they're not getting living wage and they're not getting proper equipment to do their jobs, that's the failure of the ordinance being enforced. Um, what might see the late light of day in the next six months is we were part of a coalition called the Big Easy Budget Coalition. It was a group of policy and advocacy and organizing community organizations that um, worked with the city council to demand transparency in our budget process generally, but specifically around how the city has used its funds from the American Rescue plan, uh, the ARPA funds. And one of the things that we've gotten out of that is a resolution that just passed last week that creates a advisory committee that will do two things, both of which are funded with ARPA funds. One is a labor audit. So we will be looking at how the city has implemented its living wage ordinance, its local hire ordinance, and its disadvantaged business enterprise rules. Um, to see if they are really being, first of all, if they're being implemented at all. Right. Second of all, if they're being implemented in a way that has really affected um, the ability of workers and and disadvantaged, traditionally disadvantaged businesses to um, achieve more equity in the economy. And if not, you know, we'll be able to identify Hope, we hope we'll be able to identify what the problems are and what and, you know and and propose some structure to to um, to fix those problems. Um, so it'll be an interesting process that just passed last week. So we ex expect that we'll have our first meeting in the in the coming weeks. Um, and then um, on the state level, for. The entire time I've been here, as long as I've been going up to the Capitol, we've been trying to get a, a minimum, you know, the state to adopt a minimum wage, um, sometimes very little just to get something, just to say, recognize that workers have a right to a minimum wage. 
sometimes a little bit more assertive, you know, higher amounts. Um, nothing's ever really moved this year. This it actually did get out of the Senate Labor Committee this year, a very modest minimum wage bill, but the Senate voted it down. Um, we have also in 2012, we got a uh, resolution passed to take a look at the problem of wage theft across the state. Um, and we were, it was a, it was a very long drawn out process, but it did result in um, me and Professor Molina, who's the director of the law of the Workplace Justice Project, to be able to set up an ad hoc committee at the State Law Institute, which is sort of the think tank that's, that writes laws for the state legislature. Um, a bunch of mostly law professors and corporate lawyers. We <laughs> actually had a had an ad hoc committee called the um, Wage Wage Payment Committee. Um, and we were trying to do to do a reform of the state's wage payment law, which is actually not bad on paper. I mean, we don't have a minimum wage law, but we have a, what's called the Louisiana Wage Payment Act or the last paycheck law, which says that if you are not paid when your employment ends, for whatever reason, if it's because you're fired, because you're laid off, because the job, job comes to its natural conclusion, your employer must pay you all the full undisputed amount of wages due to you by the next regular pay period or 15 days, whichever is sooner. So if you get laid off on a Tuesday and your next regular pay period is Friday, that Friday you should get a check for everything you're owed. All your vacation, if you had vacation, you know, everything you're owed. Um, and if the employer has a good faith reason for withholding any of those payments, um, they're supposed to let you know that, you know, here's your check minus this and this is why. So you can, you know, figure out the dispute. Right. Um, now, the only way to enforce that is through private right of action. And a lot of our cases are cases that are filed under the Wage Payment Act. Um, the, the other piece of the Wage Payment Act, the most important piece of the Wage Payment Act is if the employer does not pay you in that timely manner, you may be, well, it, the, the language of the statute says you shall be awarded up to 90 days payment, up, up to 90 days penalty wages. So, you know, if they pay you a week late, you should get a week's penalty wages. Now, that has since been amended um, to create a good faith exception that an employer can say it had a good faith reason for for not paying timely, um, which, you know, employers use to their benefit a lot. Anyway, oh, back no, we had really, this, <laughs> yes, really, unfortunately, you know, the courts tend to particularly with low wage workers, particularly with low amounts, because we often take cases that have a very low value. I mean, we have a network of private a private employment council that we work with that we helped create a organization, a, an association for that have a sort of a cross referral. They will refer to us cases that are, you know, not of a high enough monetary value for them to, to be worthwhile. You know, they have to keep their lights on and pay their phone bills and all that kind of thing. Right. Um, and we will refer to case, we will refer cases to them that, are either over income for us, so we can't take them, or we just don't have the capacity. Um, but it's a way of getting cases that have been screened by lawyers that you trust, um, you know, to to be, you know, viable, uh, but maybe not um, not exactly something that fits into your your client portfolio. Um, right. But we did have a committee to try to raise that uh, to try to rewrite the Wage Payment Act. Um, and we worked very hard through the Law Institute, and unfortunately, it didn't get anywhere through the legislature. So That's also a struggle that we definitely relate to in Alabama, the uphill battle and, and sometimes fighting years and years just to get modest improvements in, in language, um, you know, but it's it's part of the Southern experience, I think, unfortunately, um, is that uphill battle. Um and I appreciate you sharing some of the policy and advocacy work there mm -hmm. that y'all are doing. And, um, you know, I think more and more cities are looking at taking on these kind of initiatives, you know, local hire, responsible contractor ordinances, living wage mm -hmm. ordinances. 
um, which is very good, and, and we want to see that. But as you point out, the implementation phase is very, very important as well. It's one thing to just put something nice on paper uh, and everyone get a photo op at the council meeting with the resolution, but where does it leave workers afterwards? You know, is it really yeah. affecting their lives? And I think that's that's an important point. So I wanted to ask a little bit if we could switch gears again and and you you talked about the education work that y'all do, but I know you had a couple good examples uh, of things that you share with with clients and with workers uh, as y'all come into contact. And, um, you know, one of them that you mentioned to me that I I thought was really good was uh, what you should know by the end of your first day on the job. Could you share that with us? Sure. Absolutely. And this is this is something for any workers who are listening out there or anyone who, who interacts with workers. What we always tell workers, and particularly we, we have an education program where we're going into high schools and talking to, to high school students and young workers just going into the workforce, there are three things that you should know really at the start of your work. So definitely by the end of their first day, I would say even at the start of your first day, you want to ask your employer three things. One, how much are you going to be paid? Um, you know, is it, and is it going to be by the hour? Is it going to be by the day? Is it going to be the, by the week? Um, usually in those first jobs, oftentimes it's an hour. So if you're getting paid $10 an hour, you want to know you're getting paid $10 an hour. Uh, the second thing you want to know is how are you going to be paid? Are you going to be paid by check? Are you going to be paid by cash, which is legal in Louisiana? And if you are being paid in cash, please ask for a receipt. Um, are you going to be paid, you know, and how often? Um, and then the, the the last thing you really need to the third thing, not the last thing. The third thing you really need to know is who is your employer, who's your boss, who's your supervisor, who has authority over your employment, and also who are you actually working for. We have so many workers who come into us who you know sometimes are given a shirt by their employer with the name on it, but turns out that's not actually who the employer is. Um, so the reason to ask these thing, three things is is that they're very important things to know. And the other is if you, if the person you're talking to, the manager, your supervisor, whoever it is, is a little squirrely about that, that's a sign that, you know, do this job, but maybe start looking for another one. Because employers that aren't willing to be upfront about, about those basic conditions of employment are, you know, that's a red flag that there might be trouble down the road, down the road. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's great advice. And um, you had one example of a right that we have that is positive. Uh, it's positive when we can exercise it. Uh, and I was wondering if you could t- talk a little bit about that. Sure. One thing that's really important, especially for us down south, because we don't think about it so much, we have very low union density. And people tend to think of organizing rights, the right to act together with your with your coworkers as only coming in the union context. But I have heard on more than one occasion from our uh, colleagues at the National Labor Relations Board that they are looking for cases of protected concerted activity. So if you are a worker, or you and your coworkers have concerns about conditions at work, about how you're being paid, about what you're being told about your working conditions, and any of you go either as a group or one of you specifically on behalf of the group, that is a protected right. Um, and your employer should not, it is illegal for your employer to take, to take action against you for that doesn't mean that they won't, but it is a violation. It is potentially a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. So organizing together is protected. If your employer tells you you're not allowed to talk to your coworkers about how much you make and who makes more, that is not true. That is a protected right. And so you should understand that talking to your coworkers, acting together for your own benefit is a right that you have under federal labor law. Absolutely. And like you said, whether there's a union in your shop or not, um, you know, and we hope that there will be very soon. (laughs) But, you know, if there's not one yet, you still have the right uh, to protect a concerted activity. I think that's very important. 
Um, and one thing that we talked about yesterday that I wanted you to share was about the minimum wage law and the mm-hmm. the real downside for folks in Alabama, folks in Louisiana, in these states that don't have a minimum wage law, uh, because, you know, the assumption is, well, you know, at least this, the federal government has one, right? So we fall under that and it's not that big of a deal, right? Uh, but it is a really big deal. And uh, you shared with me a little bit about why it is a big deal. And I was wondering if you could share that today. Sure. The The thing that you don't have um, if you don't have a, a if you don't have a minimum wage law, or if you don't have a state law that provides for this, is the thing that we see is first of all, if you work for a small enough employer, you might not have a right to a minimum wage at all. Although most employers we find at least honor the federal minimum wage of seven twenty five, even if maybe they're not. But there is specific jurisdiction. There's specific jurisdictional requirements for employers to be bound by all of the terms of the Fair Labor Standards Act. And the one that we come across the most is not the minimum wage, it's the overtime provisions. So the example that we have had before with clients is you work workers who work for a small restaurant, um, it doesn't meet the jurisdictional requirement of $500,000 in gross sales for all of its employees to be covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And if you work in the back of the house as a dishwasher um, and you're making $7.25 and they have you work $50, 50 hours a week, you don't have any right to overtime because you're not covered by the federal law that says you have to get overtime. Um, and we don't have any state provisions uh, for overtime because we don't have a state minimum wage law and we don't have any provisions for overtime. So it's just something to be aware of. Um, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing we can really do about it except to keep fighting to try to get a minimum wage and overtime law that would be enforceable at the state level. But it is just something to know. And, you you know, it's not one of those things you're going to ask on the first day because most employers don't even know, small employers don't even know if they're covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. But just something to be aware of that um, if you work on those in those small margin industries or, you know, for sort of fly by night or smaller employers, you might not even have the basic protections of federal law. Yeah, absolutely. Very important to know. And as we wrap up this morning, I wanted to do two things. One, I'm going to give you an opportunity, of course, to to share where folks can get plugged into the Workplace Justice Project and um, how they can stay plugged into the work that y'all are doing. Uh, but before we get to that, I wanted to just ask your general thoughts as someone who's been in the movement for years now. Um, You've been in the movement in California and now down here in the South. Uh, What do you make of this current moment for the American labor movement? Uh, Because there's a lot of talk about the renewed energy, the overwhelming popularity of the labor movement. We're not seeing that materialize yet in election filings, right, in new membership numbers, at least not yet. Uh, But I'm curious, you know, what are your thoughts right now about this moment? I think it's it's a very energizing moment. Um, you know, I spent, as I shared with you in our pre-conversation, I, I spent a week in Los Angeles and managed to hit, I think, six different picket lines in three days. Mm. Um, that's awesome. And, um, and that's very exciting. But I also see organizing happening here. Um, we have worked with a group of city workers who have been organizing um, and making sure that they, you know, they have collective bargaining rights. They had some, you know, there was some tumult in when they switched which unions represented them. But that is getting, I hope, back on track. And they, I hope, will soon be negotiating a new contract. But it really was a movement of workers saying, we're not, our employer is supposed to be negotiating with us and sitting down with us and we're supposed to have a voice at work and we don't. We see not only are a couple of our out of our branches of Starbucks have workers that are organizing, but at least one of our local coffee chains has workers in one, maybe two locations that have uh, filed for union elections. Um, There are nurses that are organizing in Louisiana. So I think one of the things that's happening right now is just an awareness among workers that they have the right to organize. And what they've seen and continue to see 
with the Teamsters winning a new contract with UPS, with the Writers Guild just winning an agreement that really is phenomenal. Um, and hopefully the SAG following on the on the on the heels of that. Um, with what's going on with the UAW, uh, even in in Mississippi, right between New- Louisiana and Alabama, there are UAW workers on strike in Mississippi. Um, is we see that workers are taking their power, and I think that 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 is the shining moment I I see right now is that um, workers that are on the job are realizing that they don't have to take these conditions that they can stand up and build power together, and I also see that. Young people um, are seeing that that they have the opportunity to change the way things have always been done, or to take things back to when things used to be done better. However, you however you'd like to look at it, but um, I think that that is what is happening right now, and I hope that we grow that movement in um, places like Mississippi and Louisiana and Alabama and across the South where workers, uh, particularly workers of color, uh, particularly black workers, um, indigenous workers, brown workers have been exploited uh, for generations, for hundreds of years, um, and are seeing now that they can take, that they can build up, they can build power in their status rather than using it, letting themselves be exploited. Right. Absolutely. I think organizing the South is so huge and critical to this country and the future of this country. Um, and if if when labor is able to make um, a broad resurgence here in the South and really, um, you know, grow in the South, I think it could transform the political conditions down here and really result in the kind of interracial people power that could bring much, much needed change. And so uh, I'm excited as well. I'm, I'm cautiously excited. Um, you know, I can't help but look at those election filings every week and think, well, where's the energy at yet? Uh, but, yeah. you know, it's it's something that, as you said, more workers are paying attention. And even I'm experiencing that when I talk with workers, um, you know, at work or, or out just in the streets, uh, people are talking about these struggles and talking about these strikes and talking about these unions and um, there's conversations happening, I think, at a new level that I'm not used to. And um, so I, I really am hopeful and uh, I, I appreciate your your work in this movement. Uh, and I want to give you a chance just to tell people where can they find out more about the Workplace Justice Project in New Orleans and and kind of stay plugged in. Sure. We um, the easiest way to find us is we have a website. It's wjpnola at dot uh, org. Wjpnola dot org. We also have a Facebook page. We're a Workplace Justice Project. We probably don't post nearly enough as we should, but on that we uh, work on that website again. It's wjpnola dot org. Um, you will find there's a contact us form. We are happy to answer any kind of questions. Um, take complaints from near far. If we can't help you, we always try to get you to someone who can. Um, And again, I'm so thankful to the Valley Labor Report for being here and for having us on. And uh, Adam, look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and uh, hope you have a good rest of your day. Thanks. You too. All right. Yeah. So that was that was great. Uh, Really enjoyed the Workplace Justice Project. I'm so glad that I connected with them. you know, again, that was just from reading a random Department of Labor press release. Uh, and by the way, I guess I didn't really specify, but uh, the press release was about a partnership with the Wage and Hour Division in the New Orleans District Office, uh, basically just formalizing information sharing and some cross training, uh, just collaboration that's already been building for years that is now formalized with a MOU. And I think that's really cool. It's uh, the first. Uh, community workers organization like this to get an MOU with the DOL. Uh, and so that's a really cool thing. And, and I'd love to see that spread from city to city across the South in particular. Um, as we wrap up, I want to mention a couple events that Labor Notes is hosting uh, coming up. They have their Secrets of a Successful Organizer series in October. That's going to start October 11th and uh, continue on the 18th and 25th. Uh, We uh, do encourage you to attend all three workshops in the series. Uh, On October 3rd, 
What to do when your union breaks your heart? Again, uh, I mention this workshop every month because I think it's an important workshop. It's one that I hope you don't have to attend, uh, but if it's relevant to you, it, it will be uh, very beneficial. Um, and you did just miss their stewards workshop this past week on dealing with difficult supervisors. Uh, that's a really good one. Um, and so if you want to stay tuned on those, labornotes.org slash events. Um, and the last couple of things I wanted to wrap up with is remind y'all that I was on America's Workforce on Friday of last week. So Fla uh, Flash had us on or had me on to talk about IATSE and the Valley Labor Report and my work with Alabama Arise. Really appreciated that. And that's it for today's episode of Shop Talk. Hope it was worth your time. I really appreciate everyone listening. If you enjoyed it, please share it uh, and make sure that you are plugged into our work. Just a reminder that the Valley Labor Report is a working class media collective dedicated to lifting up labor struggles throughout Alabama and across the South. We bring you Alabama's only union talk radio show every Saturday morning with the first half from 9.30 to 11 a.m. live on FM radio through WVNN here in the Huntsville listening area. The entire program is online via Facebook, YouTube, and podcast, and portions of the program are replayed on WZZA in the Shoals and WHIV out of New Orleans. Um, and quick note, we will clip some segments from today's episode to play on our main show just to make sure our WHIV audience uh, is exposed to the content in case they, they're not checking out Shop Talk online on YouTube. We do encourage you to check out our website, tvlr.fm, uh, where we have news and commentary. You can sign up for our email newsletter. If you'd like to get Last Week in Southern Labor or Boss Watch in your inbox, just sign up, tvlr.fm. You can check out our store while you're there and get some union-made merch. And finally, we rely on donations and sponsorships to put out all of this free content. We, we really appreciate the local unions and organizations that sponsor ads on our Saturday show and, of course, Labor Notes for their sponsorship of Shop Talk. Our single biggest source of contributions comes from listener donations. You can make a one-time donation or a recurring contribution at tvlr.fm donate. So if you share our mission to grow the Southern labor movement, if you share our belief in the power of solidarity and collective organization, if you want media that is for working people by working people, please consider becoming a recurring donor at tvlr.fm slash donate. All power to the workers. Solidarity, y'all. Solidarity, y'all.